Hello, everyone. Apologies for the brief delay there, but uh, glad you could all make it. Uh, thank you for joining us today for uh, an event on Section 230, a look ahead in a new era. Uh, depending on who you ask, uh, Section 230 is either the Magna Carta of the Internet or the 26 words that gave us the Internet, uh, or it is the law that allows for some of the most famous Internet com companies to be negligent in moderating content or to engage in politically motivated bias. Uh, given the events of the last few weeks, I think this conversation is, is very appropriate. But even if that the, the events of the last couple of weeks, uh, the storming of the Capitol and a new administration being sworn in uh, had not occurred, it would, I still think, nonetheless be appropriate to discuss Section 230. Uh, if only because uh, my colleague William Duffield today published his inaugural paper for the Cato Institute titled Circumventing Section 230 Product Liability Lawsuits Threaten Internet Speech. Uh, the goal here today is for Will to uh, summarize this paper and then to engage in a conversation with uh, two excellent guests. We have Kate uh, Tomorello from Engine and Mike Masnick from TechDoc. Uh, as ever with a Cato event, um, please feel free to submit questions. Uh, I will deal with them as they come in. Uh, be sure to use the hashtag on social media, hashtag Cato Technology, and I will get to your questions. Uh, so before diving into a summary of the paper, I would uh, would like each of the guests here to briefly introduce themselves before turning uh, over to a discussion on the paper. So, Will, please kick us off with an introduction. My name is Will Duffield, and I'm a policy analyst at the Cato Institute studying Internet speech and governance. Um, I can go next. Uh, I'm Kate Tamarello. I'm the executive director at Engine. And for anyone who's new to Engine, we're a nonprofit based in DC that works with a network of thousands of startups and investors and ecosystem support organizations across the country to advocate for pro startup, pro innovation policies. Great. And I'm Mike Masnick, uh, the founder of Tector, which is a blog that covers all sorts of issues related to tech and policy, uh, and also of the Kopi Institute, which is a think tank that also uh, does research and events around these uh, ideas and concepts as well. Great. Thank you, Mike and Kate, for, for being here. Uh, Will, could you uh, please, I suppose, uh, briefly discuss Section 230, uh, what it is, why you think it's important, and what mo motivated you to write uh, this paper in particular? So my policy analysis examines how product liability claims have been increasingly employed in attempts to get around Section 230's protections. Section 230 generally forecloses suits that treat platforms as the speaker of user speech. However, in a pair of recent lawsuits, litigants attempted to sue platforms for negligently providing publishing tools or providing unsafe publishing tools rather than suing them for the act of publishing harmful speech. In one case, Matthew Herrick was harassed by his ex-boyfriend via the dating app Grindr. His ex-boyfriend created a fake profile in his name and sent strangers to his home expecting sex. After the NYPD failed to enforce a restraining order against Herrick's ex, he sued Grindr alleging that the firm had negligently provided a dating app which could be used to stalk and harass and should require users to verify their identities to prevent this sort of thing from happening. While the harassment Herrick suffered is 
disturbing. Requiring Grindr to know its users would put gay men in other parts of the world in danger. More broadly, the expectation that platforms continually modify or redesign themselves to foreclose any potential for abuse would render them useless to lawful users as well. So while these suits were ultimately unsuccessful, the remedies they requested have inspired proposals to amend Section 230 to require reasonable moderation of user speech by platforms. More stringent moderation has already inspired no small amount of worry about platforms setting a floor on internet speech above the baseline established by the First Amendment. This is less of an issue when exit to more liberally governed websites is easy. Section 230 has long kept switching costs low by ensuring that new websites can spring up to meet unmet demand without needing to take on particular moderation duties. Mandating that all platforms or all platforms of a particular type adopt some judicially understood set of reasonable moderation practices risks eliminating diversity between platforms and creating essentially a bad tendency test enforced by litigation averse private intermediaries. Reasonable moderation is likely to require the removal of speech deemed to have a tendency to produce illegal conduct. As a matter of First Amendment law, this test was replaced with the imminent lawless action standard in the late 1960s. However, requiring reasonable moderation by platforms would impose a privately administered bad tendency test on internet users. So as Democrats assume the legislative driver's seat, they should moderate their expectations of platform moderation and recognize that modifying publishing tools to prevent misuse will affect lawful uses as well. And an open-ended expectation of reasonable moderation will necessarily require unaccountable platforms to curtail legal speech. All right, thanks for that, Will. Um, so turning to, to Kate, Kate, I was wondering uh, if you could uh, maybe explain a bit more about the work that, that Engine does and also perhaps explain why uh, Section 230 is uh, particularly important in the vast uh, uh, market we have for uh, these kind of intermediaries. I know today we oftentimes discuss Section 230 in the context of so-called big tech, but uh, please, uh, yeah, discuss uh, Section 230 in the context of companies that aren't um, household names. Hi, Kate. It appears that we're having some uh, audio issue issues with, uh, with oh, your sorry. content. So while while we seek to address that, sorry. Uh, oh, I can hear you now. Um, I'm sorry if you wouldn't okay, mind giving your comments again. Sorry about that. Yeah, please yeah. go ahead. Uh, so sorry about that. Uh, so I think it's really important to take Section 230 out of the um, kind of big tech social media conversation and, and to think about it across the ecosystem more broadly. Uh, we have startups in every state and every congressional district across the country, and a lot of them are intermediaries in one way or another and rely on the liability limitations in Section 230. So it's not just about tweets and YouTube videos and Facebook posts. It's about 
uh, photo sharing services that uh, market to, um, you know, farming applications, or it's about uh, comment sections on websites, or it's about review websites. So I think removing 230 from kind of the heated uh, big tech debate is really important because it has a much broader application. And for the startups we work with, there's no such thing as perfect content moderation. Uh, there's no algorithm you can run, and there is no correct number of human content moderators you can hire to ensure that no bad content ever makes it onto your your website or your platform. Uh, and so it's really important that you know startups trying to get investment and trying to launch and trying to grow in the early stages don't have to worry about being sued out of existence. Because even with Section 230 in place, it's still pretty expensive to get lawsuits dismissed when you assert 230 at the earliest stages. Without 230, I mean, you're looking at full full legal cases with discovery and full trials, and that that runs into the hundreds of thousands of dollars very quickly. And for the startups we work with, that one of those would bankrupt you. Uh, so we tend to think about 230 not necessarily in the context of you know the debates that are happening right now, especially in the wake of January 6th, but how it applies to the ecosystem more broadly and how it ensures that if you want to see competition in the internet ecosystem, uh, you got to make sure you're allowing these companies to get off the ground. Yeah, Mike, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, discuss uh, January 6th, which Kate just mentioned, if only uh, because I think Kate raises an interesting point, which is how appropriate is Section 230 in, in a lot of the debates we're, we're hearing these days? So uh, mo most recently, we've been hearing a lot about political extremism and that these companies are potentially negligent. Uh, and uh, But there are other concerns uh, beyond that. Uh, do, do you think Section 230 fits neatly into this or are are lawmakers taking aim at the wrong target? Uh, yeah, I think that's a it's a really good and important question, uh, and I think that sort of building on both you know what Will was saying and, and what's in his paper and and his introduction and then Kate's comments as well, you know one of the great things about Section two hundred and thirty is that it allows for experimentation. It allows for different companies to take different approaches and to, to change and to modify quickly as events warrant. And so, you know, a lot of what happened uh, in the wake of January 6th was a realization that the situation had changed and the context had changed and, and whether or not these platforms wanted to be, um, you know, out there and being used to, you know, invite further violence, uh, incite further violence, um, you know, were things that that were sudden concerns that went beyond just the, you know, uh, looking at the, the exact speech that was on those platforms, and therefore they decided that they needed to act. And Section 230 allowed for that and allowed for the different companies to take different approaches uh, and to, to sort of, um, you know, make changes on the fly and that you know ability to adapt and to change and to to make different decisions is is part of the benefit of 230 whereas you know having more defined rules about what speech is or is not allowed which beyond having significant first amendment issues and and concerns um, also leads to a world where you don't have that ability to change and to react and to adapt to different situations and different contexts Right. Well, um, I wanted to ask about the specific case you discussed, so Grinder and Herrick, 
because some people might say, you know, that that it's worthwhile always to point out that uh, there's nuance here, that uh, there are unintended consequences to trying to make these companies perhaps more responsible. Uh, but the fact that there are potential unintended consequences, does that really mean that we should just do nothing? Are we going to make the perfect be the enemy of the good? Uh, what kind of thinking should we employ here? Is there a way to think about this uh, beyond Section 230 defense? Uh, is is there a way to actually be, be nuanced about this or is, is it just too, too difficult? Nuance involves recognizing the other mechanisms we may have either in the United States or, or elsewhere to resolve these kinds of harms. And in Herrick's case, this was a failure of law enforcement. Um, and we ought to recognize that this responsibility was really only foisted upon Grinder because the NYPD failed to take his harassment at the hands of his ex-boyfriend seriously as a crime. Um, but if we look elsewhere in the world, we see legal regimes which are incredibly hostile to gay men and would take the fact that Grinder had the identities or knew the identities of its users as an excuse to uh, attempt to bully the company into revealing them um, in, in order to seek legal punishment for, for their users. So I think a lot of that broader nuance comes in looking at the background conditions which inform people's and government's potential use of the app or other means of realizing justice. Um, in this case, Herrick's ex-boyfriend was eventually charged with cyber-stalking. And while I believe the case is ongoing, will probably end up spending a fair amount of time in jail. Um, again, to trade that or, or a quicker resolution that way for um, real risk of violence against men in the other, other parts of the world, um, I think would be a very poor trade. Kate, uh, building, building on that, do, do you agree that it's, uh, in many of these cases, what we're dealing with is a failure of law enforcement rather than uh, poorly crafted federal legislation? Well, I think certainly in, in the Herrick case, it's that. Um, it's most of the times we're talking about 230, we're not even talking about, or at least policymakers aren't talking about unlawful content, content or conduct. Um, a lot of the 230 complaints we see have to do with what would be protected First Amendment speech. Um, and so I think the real problem, the 230 debate is like, we don't actually mean to talk about 230. We're talking about kind of a million different problems at once and throwing this big blanket of 230 over all of it in the hope that we can solve it quickly. Uh, and so I think we have to really, you know, be specific when we're talking about 230 reform, what's the problem we're trying to get it at? Is it a problem of under enforcement of cyber stalking laws? Because that's a different issue, right? And, and a lot of a lot of police departments are uh, struggling with with cybercrime generally. So, is that the issue? Because that's that's fixable in one way that has nothing to do with two thirty. Um, and when we're talking about First Amendment protected speech, that's a totally different bucket of of issues to open up. So, I think it's in this case certainly yes, that's that's the issue. Um, but we have to be really specific when we're thinking about changing the law because it's all kind of it's a patchwork of problems without an easy solution. So, Will, do you want to uh, to, to add on that? Well, I it, see that you wanted to chime in. 
when it comes to some kinds of internet-enabled crime or novel forms of internet-enabled crime, I think we have seen police departments slowly, but really change their their attitude towards the severity of, of what happens on the internet and how it can affect people in the real world. The best example of this, I think, is swatting, um, the practice of calling in a, a fake um, threat or report of a crime in order to send the police to someone's house um, to, to harass them or perhaps provoke a violent confrontation with the police. And this was something that was for a while treated as a platform problem, um, something that apart from being very upset about being called to fake crimes, um, the police rarely charged. And after a really unfortunate incident, I believe a year and a half ago, in which police responding to a report of a barricaded shooter um, shot a, a man who He'd had an altercation with someone, I believe, in a, a video game, and they called the police to his house. And the caller was eventually charged with uh, felony murder um, for, for sending the police on that, that hunt. Um, this is something that five years ago wasn't taken seriously, and now we've really seen a shift in law enforcement's attitude towards this sort of crime. Yeah, Mike, I see that you wanted to jump in. Uh, yeah, great. So I, I think the, the point that Kate was making um, is really important and it's one worth thinking about. Um, in all of these debates, oftentimes there's a lot of hand waving from people who are saying that they sort of vaguely see something bad out there uh, on the internet and therefore it is the internet's fault. And I think it's really important whenever we're having these debates and these discussions about what to do that you know, people really dig in and define what exactly is the problem that you're trying to deal with. And is it a problem that is actually First Amendment protected speech? Because then your issue is not Section 230, it's not the internet, it is the First Amendment of the Constitution. And unless you're planning to uh, mount a campaign to get rid of the First Amendment, which uh, I don't think is going to work and would probably be a really bad idea, you're not going to get very far. But changing Section 230 is not going to change that. Other problems that are out there may have other kinds of solutions, but you know, so many of the problems that are discussed are sort of just, you know, there's bad stuff on the internet. Um, and you can't have a real or a serious policy discussion on what to do about that unless you define what is really the problem and then begin to look at what are the specific possible remedies. And unfortunately, um, nobody seems to have time for that. So much of this is just, you know, bad stuff online. 230 creates, you know, spaces online. 230 must be the problem. And I, I think that's unfortunate and is going to lead to really bad outcomes. Great, Kate, do you want to uh, to follow up? Yeah, just adding, Mike mentioned bad stuff online being kind of like the nexus of, you know, the 230 uh, debate and why we kind of find ourselves here. But I also think it's really important to point out all of the complaints about companies taking stuff offline or restricting access or um, adding interstitial pop-ups or whatever it is, uh, as also being a really uh, prevalent origin for complaints about 230. And that's also a totally different issue, right? That's that's uh, companies exercising their own First Amendment rights. So 
just just adding on it's not just it's not just uh when bad stuff is online it's when when stuff gets taken offline that is also why we start talking about 230 and, and that's a totally different problem and one that I, I think similarly is not cleanly solved with the 230 reform yeah i want to uh, uh thank the the audience for submitting questions i'm going to get to them shortly uh, as a reminder if you do have a question for any of the speakers please uh take to facebook youtube or twitter and use the hashtag uh, Cato Technology. But before I get to a few audience questions, I wanted to ask Will about uh, Section 230 and the ongoing political culture, because I think what, what Kate mentioned is really important, which is that although oftentimes Section 230 is cited in, in policy discussions about uh, uh, bias or uh, you know, other online and, and online content, uh, it, it, it oftentimes doesn't actually seem uh, appropriate. Um, oftentimes people seem to be uh, complaining about the First Amendment. Uh, what? How do you think Section 230 became such a powerful political tool? And uh, do you see that changing anytime soon? Um, I guess, firstly, I, I see the Section 230 as, in a sense, an extension of the First Amendment for the internet. And mm -hmm. as I touch upon in, in this paper, while it's often treated as a special protection um, and a protection for industry, its benefits mostly accrue to everyday internet users because by providing this protection for the creation of public to publishing tools and the provision of publishing tools, users are able to make use of them. They have this massive set bevy of platforms to choose from in order to publish and share their thoughts. And in a fashion really similar to the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, a bill that prevents gun manufacturers from being held liable for misuse of firearms, uh, Section 230 recognizes that the vitality of our First Amendment rights in this internet age turn on the availability of software that allows us to speak and publish in real time. Uh, Mike, I know that you you, pro you probably are given your coverage over the last couple of years, have some <laughs> thoughts on uh, the cultural power of 230. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think to some extent, Section 230 has become a, a victim of its own success or its own uh, marketing efforts <laughs> uh, in that, you know, for many years, those of us who who followed the 230 debates and the discussions and the various cases about it have really celebrated it and, you know, talked about it using terms like, you know, the 26 words that created the Internet, which is now the title of Jeff Kosoff's book all about Section 230. Um, and uh, we may have been too successful in talking about the importance of it in that people now assume that Section 230 is more central to the internet than it ever really was. It is incredibly important, and I think changing it would have disastrous consequences. But I think you know the reason that people are bringing 230 into all of these debates that really have nothing to do with 230 and often are very much First Amendment issues uh, are because we were so successful in explaining the importance of 230 in in helping the inter shape the internet the way that that it has turned out. Uh, and so I wish that beyond just sort of getting the high level idea that that 230 is important to the internet that that people 
took into account what it actually does and what its limitations are as well. Right. So to that point, uh, I think uh, I might begin with a, an audience question that that touches that touches on this. Uh, there's a question from Anonymous, uh, and Anonymous is asking, uh, "What protection do platforms have to selectively remove material or restrict access?" I am thinking of what Twitter and Facebook have done to President Trump, although I guess now former President Trump. Um, I so I'll take this as you will. So what is what is the law, if not Section 230, that is allowing for these social media companies to remove content that they think is inappropriate for their uh, for their platform? Well, the underlying law is the First Amendment. Um, and to, to kind of echo Kate's procedural point earlier, much of its value, particularly in allowing or really just aiding platforms in removing speech that they consider offensive or merely off topic for their forum, is that it forecloses these, um, or at least limits, um, must carry suits. Um, rather than having to go back and forth, get into whether a contract might have been present in the terms of service, um, or whether a platform is uh, some public square, um, platforms can fairly freely remove things they consider beyond the pale or, or off topic um, without having to litigate each of these decisions. Great. Um there's a, a question from uh, Will and I, uh, our colleague, uh, Kat Murphy, uh, had a question about a specific case. Uh, and she asked, if Section 230 makes platforms not liable for misuse of platforms, then why did the people who ran uh, things like Backpage get raided? Uh, so this is for anyone. But if any of you are familiar with the case, um, please just give the audience a bit of a background on Backpage. And uh, if Section 230 is a liability shield, then why was there a raid? if you want. Um, so, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, so, so Backpage uh, was, um, you know, it was a, an online classified site. Um, it sort of took after Craigslist in a lot of ways in, in, in its early days. It, it grew out of what was literally the Backpage of the Village Voice and a number of other alt weeklies. Um, and it was used quite a bit for uh, advertising sex work, which caused lots of controversy on, on all different accounts. And in some cases, there were accusations that sex traffickers made use of Backpage. Uh, and so there were a number of different cases brought against Backpage over time. Um, and one of them uh, was sort of narrowly thrown out on 230 grounds. Other ones were not. Uh, the reason that it eventually got taken down was that federal law enforcement took it down. And this brings up a really important point it gets back a little bit at, at stuff that was said earlier, which is that there's an exemption in Section 230 for federal criminal law. There uh, has never been, Section 230 has never protected websites uh, from federal criminal violations. And, you know, there were arguments that if Backpage was actually violating federal criminal law with regards to sex trafficking, um, that the DOJ, you know, could have gone after them at any point. Um, and in fact, it, that led to this this very weird situation in which you know there was a, a years long process of putting together a, a, a 
reform for Section 230, which has gone by various names, FOSTA and SESTA, and now is usually referred to as FOSTA, which everyone who was backing FOSTA said it was necessary to take down Backpage. They were very explicit about it. They named Backpage over and over again. There was this debate and, and you know, this insistence that we had to pass FOSTA to, to stop Backpage from enabling trafficking. Uh, and then after it passed, but before uh, then President Trump signed it into law. Then the DOJ went and took down Backpage without that law. Uh, and that case is still ongoing. There's there's a lot of ins and outs to that case. Um, but it, it turned out that the Justice Department never needed uh, uh, FOSTA and Section 230 never blocked them from, from going after Backpage. They just had chosen not to. Uh, and yet now we're still left with that law, which has created a whole bunch of other problems. Kate, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I want to just highlight what Mike said about the fact that Backpage was taken down before uh, SESTA FOSTA was, was law, uh, which was, I think, a good example of kind of the under enforcement point that Will was making earlier. DOJ could have gone after Backpage much earlier uh, and, and mm -hmm. didn't. So it's a, a law enforcement problem. But I also just want to add on Mike hinted at kind of the, the unforeseen consequences of SESTA FOSTA. And we work with a lot of companies who um, have said that they changed their services pretty dramatically after SESTA-FOSTA, not because they were doing anything illegal or they thought that they you know, um, would end up on the wrong end of a DOJ suit, a criminal suit, uh, but because they were worried about getting close to it. They, they didn't want to have anything like, for instance, um, resources to help sex workers get out of sex work. Um, you know, interviews with sex workers about safe sex, things that are totally legal and protected speech, but they were worried that in hosting it, they were kind of creating this um, incentive to test the bounds of the law. And so a lot of lawful and, and many people argue valuable speech was shut down because these platforms felt they couldn't they couldn't take on the liability. And so I think that's that is a really important point to add that it's not just it's not just Backpage, right? It, it, there's a whole ecosystem of folks kind of in the adjacent spaces and, and making it harder for them to to serve their users, uh, especially when you know their users are looking for uh, lawful and and helpful speech is is really dangerous. Mike, did you want to discuss uh, something related to competition? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to recognize. You know, I think a lot of the complaints that that some people have about sort of big tech and and these different internet companies is actually a competition question. And for some reason, they seem to think that 230 reform or 230 repeal somehow solves the competition issue. But I, but I actually think it's it's the opposite of that. Uh, you know, we had released a study, uh, I forget when now, like two years ago, basically looking at how 230 actually helps competition. And the FOSTA discussion actually is a really good example of that. You know, Kate talked about how companies had changed their policies. And in some cases, Cases, there were a bunch of companies that right after FOSTA passed, they shut down dating websites, that they were just sort of, you know, normal, uh, everyday kind of dating sites. But they worried that because of the, the very broad wording of FOSTA and creating this brand new big exception within Section 230, that if their dating site was misused, that they could be liable in, in some dangerous way. So a bunch of them shut it down. And then a few months later, suddenly Facebook launched its own dating site. And so what you ended up with was sort of more consolidation and more power in the hands of the big companies through the reform of Section 230, which many people argue is necessary to create more competition. And yet the evidence that we have already uh, from FOSTA seems to suggest the, the opposite is true. So if you want more competition, you know, uh, reforming Section 230 seems to do the opposite of that. <laughs> 
there. I think it whenever you impose some new legal risk, the easiest way for firms to get out of it is to be acquired by a larger firm with more resources to spend on lawyers, because then it's no longer your problem. Um, yeah. Uh, there, there's a question that I wanted uh, from the internet that I would like to throw out uh, to, to all three of you. Uh, the question is from Anonymous, uh, and it, uh, the question is, if 230 is eliminated, what are social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Parler likely to look like? Uh, one possibility, perhaps, is that information provided by these services would look more like general entertainment rather than political discourse, other other forms of liability protection. Um, and I'll just add to that, um, how, how crucial really is 230, given that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all available in other countries? Uh, it seems as if uh, 230 hardly seems to be a necessary condition. So why, why, why necessarily would Facebook and Twitter and Parler look different if 230 was eliminated? Because they seem to function in countries without 230. Uh, open to anyone, feel free to jump in. Well, I think, first of all, it's worth recognizing that these firms grew up here. Um, these are American companies which were founded in, in America for a reason. Um, and Europe or, or abroad, uh, more generally, really haven't produced large-scale viable competitors. Um, if we imagine what in the U.S., uh, a post-Section 230, 30 world might look like for social media. I think it looks a lot more like traditional or, or print media. Um, it's not that there wouldn't be any content there, but who is able to submit content would change dramatically. Um, newspapers tend to be elite vehicles. Speech needs to be pre-approved, and you're only going to go through that editing pre-approval process for someone you think whose contributions will be valuable. Um, so I think you're, you're likely to see a narrower, um, less dynamic and less interactive social media content, um, much more like um, cable television, a passive pipe. Kate? Yeah, I think that's entirely right. Um, I think there are probably some uh, good legal arguments around First Amendment uh, and distributor liability protections that I am uh, above my pay grade and tons of smart folks have said smart things about. But I do think you run the risk of, you know, one, the main major platforms, yeah, going to like a, a magazine publishing model, right, where if, if you can't get pre-approval, you don't get to be on the platform. Um, and that will shut out not only like, you know, average internet users, you and me tweeting. But uh, I think you'd see a huge impact on like small businesses that rely on things like Facebook ads to advertise uh, sandwich deals uh, for their sandwich shop. Uh, you, there's a real risk of, yeah, I think the cable TV analogy is a good one. Uh, that's not what the internet's supposed to be. And there's a lot of business opportunities that, that would only exist for the biggest companies if they can't access these platforms the way they can now. So it's uh, it's a grim reality, and certainly the companies we work with, the startups that host user-generated content, would never be able to get off the ground if if their investors knew that one lawsuit could put them out of business. Yeah, so I'll, I'll follow up on that and, and note that 
Um, I don't know that it goes all the way to the cable broadcast model. Uh, that is a risk and certainly some sites might go in that direction, but I think there are other problems. Um, and to be honest, we have a model already um, that gives us a sense of probably what would happen. And, and I should note that, you know, with the, if you were to remove 230, there, we wouldn't have very much case law to deal with. So there would be this interim period where there would be a lot of lawsuits and there would be a huge mess and a lot of companies, probably some would end up going out of business as they have to struggle and fight the lawsuits until we had case law that determined what, what the setup would look like. But it would probably lead to eventually some sort of distributor liability regime. And we have that example already in the copyright world with the DMCA. The, the, another uh, exception to Section 230 is that it doesn't cover intellectual property. And, and in the copyright world, we have another law called the DMCA, which has a much more uh, speech limiting uh, setup, which is that there's a if you want to have if you want to protect yourself from liability as a website, you have to register with the government first of all, which is messy. Um, it, it costs some money, uh, and it has to continually be renewed. And if you make a mistake, you could you could uh, remove your protections. There's a whole bunch to that. Um, and it has a notice and takedown provision, which is if somebody believes that there is infringing content on your website, they can send you a notice and you have to take it down if you want to be spared from the possibility of, of liability. So in order to, to get that shield, you have to take that content down. And in practice, what we've seen is that that is abused daily thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, people try to take down all sorts of perfectly legitimate, non-infringing content just because there is a tool that creates tremendous pressure for websites to take down that content. If we were to expand that to other content, not just copyright-related content, I would expect that we would see that very, very often and that people would send takedown notices and demands and threats to lots of different websites. And those websites whether or not they believe that the content uh, violated some law or, or did something else, they would have strong incentives to take it down just to avoid the liability aspect and to avoid having to fight one of those expensive lawsuits. And therefore, while you might not get all the way to the cable model, what you very likely would get is the ability to, to censor all different kinds of speech just because one or a few users is offended by it or finds it problematic. And so I think you would end up with a world with a lot more censorship uh, under such a regime without 230. Yeah, Will, do you want to um, uh, piggyback off Mike's recent comment? Yeah, I, I see a more minor risk of some of what you're describing in a couple proposals to, to just modify Section 230, particularly the PACT Act, which would require platforms to act and render decision one way or another on alleged um, violations of platform policy within some period of time. Um, but merely requiring platforms to render a judgment on any complaint um, especially with a time limit, sort of pushing these complaints to the front of the queue, um, you're going to shift things towards takedowns when they might not otherwise have gone that way. Additionally, in thinking about the interim period in which a new common law distributor liability standard might be developed after some 230 repeal, that 
period wouldn't or a repeal wouldn't occur in a vacuum and at least quite certainly if you were to see um some legislative removal or repeal of 230 then the language that surrounded and justified that imposition of liability um congressmen's expectations that platforms take responsibility for what flows across them um, might inform how judges look at this post-230 world and lead us to a far more restrictive distributor liability standard than if 230 had simply disappeared overnight without um, the attendant legislative discourse. Kate, did you want to, to follow up? Yeah, just very quickly on Mike's point of the DMCA, I think the the idea that platforms are kind of not not ill-equipped, but not well-equipped to handle a lot of DMCA takedown notices, and that's why you see over takedowns, that's a real problem. And it gets not just like, uh, you know, incrementally worse when we're talking about 230, uh, it gets significantly worse because while a platform may not be able to quickly or efficiently judge is something infringing, they are even less well-equipped to judge is something defamatory, right? That's like something for a trial <laughs> to sort out and asking a platform to very quickly process complaints about something like defamatory content or otherwise illegal content gets incredibly more complicated and, and no small platform certainly is in a good position to do that. And I, I would bet most of the large platforms aren't either. Yeah, and and I wanted to follow up a little bit on on Will's point about the Pact Act and 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 this idea of you know companies having to sort of commit to certain actions, uh, and I think that that's often an idea that people think is a good uh, a good way to handle these questions if they've never had to deal with content moderation questions themselves. Uh, and I think it's really important for people to recognize, like so many people think that you can write very clear rules that are easily applied. Uh, and that most, you know, content moderation questions are sort of black and white decisions that easily fall on one side of the, uh, uh, or other of the line. Uh, and they recognize like, yeah, you know, there are a few sort of hard decisions, but I, I think they have the the setup wrong. It is almost all hard decisions and, and very many gray uh, zone decisions to make and very few that are very clearly black and white. And you know, when we have things like a court system that may take many, many years to render a judgment on, on important issues, and yet we expect companies to render a full and fair and uh, consistent judgment on complex content moderation questions, giving them sometimes an hour or sometimes 24 hours is, you know, it's beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, and, and many of the people suggesting these things don't sort of recognize how this works in, in actual practice. I wanted to turn to a question from Facebook. Uh, Jeremy Slater asks, if we are to protect from extremist echo chambers that we have seen uh, led to the January 6th events, how might we reconcile protections for First Amendment rights with company independence? Uh, Will, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, and my, mine is, I guess, a more limited example here. But one of the the websites that seemed to play a role in organizing, hosting speech about uh, the, the January 6th riots was a dissident subreddit called R the Donald. And several months ago, it was banned by Reddit, kicked off of their site, and moved to 
a new domain, this .win domain, where it was then outside of Reddit's purview. No longer their problem, but also no longer bound by their moderation standards. So dis discrete or individual platform actions to combat extremism can be valuable, but when users are banned from one platform or another, they don't necessarily disappear and pushing them into or setting them off into um, a, a forum in which those extreme views will be supported, will face less challenge, um, can be dangerous in its own right. You have to obviously balance that against concerns about the visibility of this sort of thing. Obviously, Reddit doesn't want to fall on the sword, as it were, and, and just host this so it doesn't go off into a, a more extreme space. But at the same time, these are difficult decisions, and it's not simply a matter of getting rid of something by pushing it off platform. Yeah, Mike, did you want to uh, to add? Yeah, I, I think Will is actually making a really important point here that I think a lot of people jumping into this debate don't necessarily understand or, or follow as closely, which is that, you know, questions about how do you deal with uh, incitement to violence and and uh, you know getting mobs to to um, you know pl plan violent activity is is a a a huge societal level challenge that has existed long before technology existed uh, and the idea that we're going to magically fix it through technology platforms suddenly figuring out the moderation secret is is somewhat crazy um, and there are all of these you know they're all a whole bunch of very, very smart researchers who have done all sorts of work going back decades on countering disinformation and how do you deal with, you know, hateful groups and and how they recruit and how they expand and all of this kind of stuff. And it takes a lot of work beyond just, you know, cutting them off from this platform because in some cases they might go somewhere else and some and that somewhere else might be harder for people to to push back or to or to monitor it for law enforcement for example um, and so there are, there's a, a, a lot of effort here that that has to go into it and the idea that this is something that has to be dealt with or solved by a few uh, individual tech companies I think is you know out, outside of reality as a a question that I think uh, would be good uh, for for Kate here um, and if I can find it here uh, from uh, another anonymous. So uh, the, the question is, the challenge is the, is the credibility hit when companies make choices related to preferences or truth. Why not just let everything that is legal stay out there rather than being the arbiter of truthfulness? Uh, claim truth is not always accurate. The accepted truth at one point uh, said that the earth was flat. So. So, Kate, why why shouldn't uh, companies just adopt a, an easy content moderation policy of saying we allow everything that is legal? I mean, then the whole internet's the same, right? Like, then um, you could go on to any any website and post any comment, and uh, it should be allowed, whether or not it's relevant. I think, especially for startups there's a lot of pressure to respond to users, uh, whether that's responding to users' uh, push to keep environments safe. Uh, so, you know, things like harassment uh, are lawful and uh, 
Sometimes they're even based on truths, but that doesn't mean a platform has to allow it to happen if, if they're interested in protecting their users. And there's also a huge pressure on, on small platforms to appeal to a niche, right? Um, the best example of this, I think, is the Reddit, the subreddit um, cats standing on their hind legs, right? Where you can only post photos of cats standing on their hind legs. Uh, and if you post a photo of a dog or um, a picture of the flat earth or a whale or anything else, it gets taken down because that's not what that's for. Uh, the internet is kind of, the nice thing about the internet is it brings together communities that, that maybe aren't large enough to exist, you know, in your hometown, but exist all across the world. And so if you made it so that every, every company trying to appeal to those communities had to moderate based only on whether, um, whether something is true or not, uh, I think is, is a really dangerous situation. And if you, if you require those companies to moderate based only on whether or not, you know, it's, um, it's harmful, I think that's, that's too narrow of a bucket. So you want you want companies to differentiate in their content moderation policies because that's how we we find communities that make sense for each user. Yeah, I, I think Kate's Kate's point is is exactly right, and it's important. I know a lot of people sort of jump to that, like why why don't we just use the First Amendment uh, as the measuring stick? But again, there there are a few different problems with that. One one is exactly what Kate described, where if everybody has to do that, you no longer have you know, niche sites that that are focused on on specific topics, um, and like you know, one example that I saw recently was a, a a forum for magicians, right? And they have a rule that you cannot reveal how a, a magic trick is done, right? Which is a perfectly good rule for for a forum like that. And yet, you know, if somebody revealed how a magic trick is done, that doesn't violate the First Amendment. That you know, it's perfectly legal speech, but it's it's problematic for that particular forum. So you have all these communities where that kind of standard doesn't make any sense. And then to build on what Kate was saying, also is that you know, hate speech is protected under the First Amendment. So is most spam uh, and abusive content. And so what you end up with there is that if you're if you're forced to allow all of that speech to to stick around, then you you know you have a, a website that's filled with garbage, and you upset advertisers who don't want their advertisements appearing next to that kind of content. You upset many of your users who don't want to be and have that experience, uh, and, and push them away, and that that harms speech in its own way. Uh, and so I, I think it's a you know, I understand where people are coming from when they come up with that suggestion, but I think it's a it's a really unrealistic idea that doesn't take into account the realities of community and how communities work. Thank you, uh, Mike and Kate. Uh, we are in the final uh, ten minutes here, and uh, I would um, oh, sorry, Will, did you want to jump in? Oh, just that the real world runs on this principle as well. If I want to to play jazz. I can't go to the opera and do it. Uh, I, I can't talk about whales at the Royal Automotive Society. And that's what gives the jazz club and the orchestra and the Royal Automotive Society their unique characters and allows them to become focal points for community and particular interests. Um, so there's no reason to expect a, a different standard vis-a-vis -vis private property on the internet. Great, thank you. Uh, yeah, we do have uh, 10 minutes left and, and please keep the questions uh, coming audience. Uh, there, there are too many to get to, but I wanted to uh, return to some of the earlier questions that I didn't get to. So one, uh, and I'll direct this to Will, it comes from uh, Susanna Peters who asks, uh, Section 230 gives private companies a lot, maybe too much power over customer speech. 
like the heralded Facebook panel reviewing former President Trump's right to return help the situation. Uh, she goes on to ask, what about some sort of model agreement allowing a neutral content review board to hear access complaints across multiple platforms? Well, I, I like Facebook's attempt. Um, we'll see how it, how it shakes out or what kinds of decisions they render. But I think there's value in it just applying to Facebook. Um, Facebook does have its own terms of service, its own set of standards, and its own purpose. And if we were to take up some kind of cross-platform adjudication panel, um, I think we would again risk imposing a single set of expectations across multiple platforms rather than potentially recognizing what makes each individual platform special and perhaps deserving of unique rules. Okay. Yeah, so I, there is a model for this, right? We, the GIFCT does, it's a cross-company um, cooperation to deal with terrorist content. And I think that GIFCT kind of has its own um, set of rules and, and issues that come along with that. And I'm certainly not holding up GIFCT as the perfect example, but it's really important to note that GIFCT is dealing with a really specific set of problematic content uh, that is illegal, or at least, um, you know, widely, widely it's illegal. So to kind of get to the premise of the question, I mean, it's not Section 230 that lets companies take content down, right? It's the First Amendment that lets companies take content down. Uh, Section 230 just means that you don't have to spend several months or years and tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars proving that it's a First Amendment problem. So uh, I think that's, you know, totally agree with Will. You run the risk of having the whole internet look the same if they're all following the same rules. And I don't think anybody wants that. But also, I mean, it's important that companies be empowered to kind of respond to their users and, and you know, fulfill their purpose and not have this uh, one-size-fits-all solution. I do think that independents can provide a lot of legitimacy, though, to the moderation process. When you have the same people making the initial call also looking over the appeal, it's probably not going to strike many users as a genuine um, review of the decision. There's a, uh, a question, and I'll, I'll pitch it to, to Mike, uh, a question from Walter, who uh, asks, any thoughts on Twitter's proposed Birdwatch user-controlled content rating system? Uh, this was a, a recently announced um, initiative from Twitter. So, Mike, uh, what is Birdwatch, and what do you think about it? Yeah, I think Birdwatch is, is really interesting. We'll, we'll see how it plays out in reality. I think that they sort of took a... a a page from Wikipedia, right? Where Wikipedia, all of the content moderation is done by all the users and basically anyone can jump in and 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 moderate. And, and there's a whole bunch of sort of community norms that have been developed around that. And so Birdwatch is an attempt to deal with you know, potential disinformation by letting effectively anyone chime in and say, this is dis disinformation or misinformation and here's why. And to, to sort of build a real-time fact check uh, of certain content on the site. And there are a few limitations and a few things about it. Um, I think it's really interesting. I'm not convinced it'll work, but I think it's a worthwhile experiment. And so therefore I'm happy to see it. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, I know that, you know, Facebook in particular, um, you know, partnered with all these fact check organizations 
And that's led to all sorts of criticism about, you know, whether or not those fact-checked organizations are legitimate or whether or not they have certain biases. Um, and this is, is a very different approach. This is basically saying anyone can come in and you present your evidence for why this is factual or why this is, you know, uh, disinformation or misinformation. And so it's sort of a, another one of these like more speech uh, approaches to dealing with potentially, you know, uh, false speech. And so I, I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful for it, but I'm not convinced it will actually work in practice. Okay, thank you. Uh, we are in the final uh, four minutes uh, of the event here, and uh, apologies again to the audience for some of the technical delays at the beginning, but I want to end uh, with uh, the, the panelists here making some predictions. Um, I am uh, very bad at predictions, so I always ask other people to make them. Uh, we seem to uh, be in a situation here where Section 230 seems ripe for uh, more public discussion and possible amendment. So do you foresee there being any amendments or changes to Section 230? And if so, what do you envision those looking like? Uh, let's start with Will. All right. Um, if we see a change to 230 in the next year, I think it'll probably concern children or uh, particularly the sexual exploitation of, of children. Um, this seems to be the one area in which both parties have very similar concerns about misuse of internet publishing tools. Um, everywhere else, it seems as though on the left, broadly, um, they'd like to see platforms do more to take down um, harmful or false speech. And on the right, folks are concerned that platforms are already doing too much. Um, but uh, around harm to children, I think you you both on both sides see a concern that platforms aren't doing enough. So that seems like it's the the wheel which will get the grease if anything happens this year. Kate, do you have any predictions? Sure. Um, I think to Will's point, the like polarization of the two hundred and thirty debate is only increasing, and um, some of the folks. Uh, using 230 enabled services like Twitter or using it to spread misinformation about 230. So that doesn't bode well uh, for how this debate unfolds. Um, I, I, mean, I just want to note to Will's point, there's like, there's already a lot of law around uh, child sexual abuse material. It's not like it's uh, necessarily in need of new laws, but there's certainly a bipartisan appetite there. And I would also say around consumer protection, I could see that being a, a bipartisan point of agreement. Okay, Mike. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I would just sort of be repeating what, what everybody else has said. I think there's obviously some appetite, I think mostly misplaced appetite, but there's some appetite to try and make changes. You know, the problem is that that so much of it is they, they disagree on what it is that they're trying to change. Um, and so I'm hopeful that that leads to no changes. Um, but uh, if there are changes, I do think that that the areas that have been previously mentioned are ones that they will attack. I think that the, they will be problematic and will lead to to bad results. Uh, but you know, we'll see. Great, thank you all. Uh, that that is the the end of the event. I want to uh, thank Mike and Kate for uh, participating. Uh, apologies to all of you online who didn't get your questions asked. Uh, but in, in my experience. Uh, Will is very receptive to to email, uh, and uh, please visit uh, the Cato website to read his his inaugural paper. 
Uh, and stay tuned for future Cato events on Section 230. Uh, I imagine we'll be talking about this uh, soon.